Welcome to episode 103 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I have to apologize. This is going to be short. Uh, we're just going to do the news roundup uh, uh, because um, I did a great interview with uh, Phil Reidinger and uh, then discovered that uh, I'd managed to uh, screw up the settings on the uh, recorder, and uh, it didn't record. So we will redo that uh, uh, interview with uh, Phil Reidinger, uh, but uh, uh, we won't be uh, uh, doing it uh, as part of this podcast. We'll release it as a separate uh, and uh, um, uh, bonus episode of uh, the Steptoe uh, podcast. Uh, uh, but with that introduction, uh, let's turn to our news roundup. I'm joined today uh, by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office, and by Jason Weinstein, uh, formerly with Justice, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions and is now doing criminal and civil litigation here at Steptoe. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's get started. Uh, uh, as I uh, hinted at the beginning, uh, we're once again going to find ourselves talking about uh, the enormous fight that uh, Apple has stirred up uh, um, in response to the government's effort to get access to a phone uh, uh, left behind uh, by one of the terrorists who carried out the San Bernardino attacks. Uh, um, uh, Michael, uh, my, uh, my impression is that after um, some uncertainty about whether to get behind Apple uh, uh, in a full-throated way. Um, uh, Silicon Valley is sort of being whipped into shape, afraid not to join uh, amicus briefs opposing the government. Uh, have, have, have the amicus briefs been filed? I have not seen any. No, they haven't been filed yet, but from what I've heard, there are uh, somewhere around 25 companies planning to join uh, one of uh, several uh, amicus briefs so it's i think your description is exactly right there you know everybody feels like they have to get on board here um we saw uh, bill gates even um have to issue a, a so-called clarification of his initial statements to the financial times i think in which he said apple should comply and then he's he turned around and after having spoken to someone at apple um you know said well that's not really what i meant so I think everybody's feeling whipped into shape. Everybody's coming on board to side with Apple. Uh, I actually shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people in Silicon Valley. I think companies who may think actually Apple should comply are, are being silent. Um, they're obviously not going to file an amicus brief on the side of the government. Well, that hasn't stopped me. I, I, Apple filed the, its uh, um, response to the government, uh, and it was a remarkably accessible document, uh, in fact, deliberately written uh, so that uh, it could be used in public relations uh, um, uh, discussions. At least that's that's what uh, Apple has been saying. Uh, um, uh, you looked it over. I looked it over. Uh, um, we probably have slightly different takes on it. Uh, uh, they make the usual 
argument that uh, you'd expect in this case that it's too burdensome and and they identify some not insignificant burdens. Uh, I think, what, six to ten engineers for two to four weeks? Uh, Couldn't tell actually whether it was engineers or just employees, but uh, six to ten people. Uh, That's probably somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000 worth of of work. Uh, um, It's not out of whack with Apple's resources, but it is a lot of work to do. Uh, and, and on that ground, that's the traditional ground for fighting these um, uh, uh, these kinds of all Ritz Acts requests for assistance. Um, they have a, a plausible but not overwhelming case, at least as I see it. Well, that, you know, that's, it's interesting you, you focus on that because that, to me, is what this case should be about under the All Writs Act, which is the, the authority that the government is relying on to, to try to get Apple to assist it, the, the primary factor is whether the, the assistance being requested by the government would impose an, an unreasonable or an undue burden on the company. And so at the core of, of uh, uh, Apple's uh, brief is an argument that, yes, this is the burden it would entail. It would entail th- this number of people over this many weeks. Furthermore, you know, this isn't just one phone. We're going to be asked to do this again and again, and so either we're going to have to take extraordinary measures to protect this new software that we have to design and and build, uh, or we're going to have to destroy it and then rebuild it for the hundreds of iPhones we're going to be asked to unlock. I thought that was a pretty persuasive case. Um, But the rest of the brief is really more in tune with the public case that Apple has been making, which is, oh, my God, this this is a terrible affront to privacy. We're also being asked to design and sell an insecure product. All these things that, to me, are just completely off base. They're not what this case is about, um, and they're not what it should be about. You know, they're, they're, this really isn't a privacy case. Uh, the the owner of the phone is deceased. Um, the phone is owned by the company. It wasn't owned by the individual, so the company has a right to consent to its search which it's done in this case, and the government has a search warrant. So privacy interests are addressed here. What this is about is whether the government can force a company to design a piece of software in order to assist the government in accessing a product that was built by that company. And that's a really interesting question, but there's so much smoke out there that's been blown by industry uh, that it obscures the real issue. Don't you think that um, the burden argument is oddly impacted by uh, all the other requests for access because, of course, they're only really going to have to spend two to four weeks with six to ten employees once. Uh, And once they have the tool, they can make it available or deploy it on behalf of all those other requests. And so if you amortized the burden over the 50 or 100 or 200 orders that they're likely to get in the near future, it isn't much of a burden at all. Uh, uh, and so uh, the that boils it down then to the question of whether there's a enormous burden in having to protect this against access by uh, unauthorized persons. Uh, and of course, every time they update their um, software, there is a possibility that they are introducing a, a, a security vulnerability. In fact, it's pretty likely. Um, a, and the way they protect against people 
using their update process to undermine the security of iPhone is not by hiding the update code, but by hiding the signature that they use to identify official Apple updates to iPhones. And if they do a good job of that, uh, they actually probably could publish the uh, uh, mechanism for exhaust for avoiding the ten strikes and you're out um, uh, mechanism, uh, and it still wouldn't do any hackers any good. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think that that part of the burden argument uh, seems pretty overblown to me. That that you know Apple would have to go to some great lengths to protect this this new software that they designed if they weren't going to. Uh, have to rebuild it each time uh, they got a, a, a request from the government to unlock a phone. And, you know, this we're talking about a company here that has been remarkably successful in keeping secret its its new product, uh, uh, you know, before yeah. the announcement at the Apple show. So, you know, that, that's, that argument I thought uh, uh, was fairly weak. Um, the other thing is the government's offered to pay for the time of the employees who have to... Uh, work on on this thing. So that certainly lessens the burden. Um, The other thing, you know, that I want to see is in the government's response, I'd like to see them come back and say, okay, Apple has said this is how many people it will take and how much time, but let's consider that against the typical search warrant for communications information or the typical wiretap order that that a communications company has to respond to. The typical case uh, of a wiretap, for instance, involves, you know, X number of employees working Y number of days. This, you know, this request isn't really out of proportion compared to a normal assistance request in a, in a run-of-the-mill case. So Apple has really uh, just exaggerated that. You know, I'm not sure if there's, if there's a factual argument there. I suspect there is, so I'm going to be looking at the government's reply to see if it makes that case. Yeah, I think I, I, I think it's also fair to say that the um, assessment of burden and the, the, the list of all the things they would have to do feels, as I said to the Washington Post on one of these things, about as padded as a no-bid government contract, uh, uh, which, come to think of it, it now is, because <laughs> uh, the government's going to have to pay for these these padded costs. Uh, uh, I, I, I also, when I, when I talked to the reporter, I, I gave a brief assessment of the First Amendment uh, claim. It's just nuts. Um, the idea that uh, they can say, well, we write code, um, and, and writing is protected, uh, so the code is protected, and the code reflects our view that encryption should be imposed everywhere. Uh, therefore, to, tell, to make us undo that is inconsistent with the First Amendment uh, interest in writing the kind of code we want to. Uh, I said, well, on that basis, the guy who uh, uh, encrypted all the hospital's records until they paid him $17,000 uh, was just exercising his First Amendment rights. Well, yeah, and, and, and car companies have a First Amendment right not to put in airbags or, or seatbelts that comply with uh, DOT regulations because, you know, those things have to be designs. Designs consist of, of words and drawings. Those have First Amendment protection, and the government's uh, forcing them to include certain content in their designs. You know, that's that's compelled speech. That's a violation of the First I mean, the, the argument has such sweeping ramifications, it's, it's mind-boggling. And just because it's computer code, you know, Silicon Valley thinks that, that there's it's First Amendment protected, but there are there are a lot of other things, a lot of other government re- regulations that would go by 
the wayside if that argument prevailed. So I'm guessing most people who listen to this have also seen my uh, uh, post on this, but I got a lot of comments, uh, and surprisingly from my posts, a lot of favorable comments on uh, something I wrote last week about Apple, um, dealing with the argument that uh, if they do this for us, they'll have to do it for repressive regimes. Uh, and so I wrote an open letter to uh, uh, Tim Cook saying, uh, really, can, can, maybe you can tell us what you've already done for repressive regimes, because it seems to me you've enabled backdoors that are far closer to actual backdoors and spent a lot more doing it uh, than the government wants you to do in this case. So uh, if, you, uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Deposing Tim Cook, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's reasonably funny, but it's designed to make the point that uh, um, the, the Chinese are not waiting to see how um, the FBI does in this case. They've been forcing Apple by threatening their market uh, to cooperate in far more aggressive attacks on the security of users than anything the FBI is talking about. I love that you write your own blog posts and you give your own reviews of those blog posts, too. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, it's, it's an important thing. You have to be able to do that uh, because the other reviews are not quite as, ki- as kind. Although on this one, I got a lot of good uh, good reviews. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, uh, you know, this is this is one of those issues where Tim Cook has taken what's you know, the obviously the popular uh, view, and he's being uh, lauded as a, a hero for privacy and freedom, and you know resisting outrageous government requests, and it's 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 not easy to to take a contrary line. So you should be applauded for that. I, I do think there is this is there is an important issue here uh, about whether the government can. Force um, or where the line is to be drawn in terms of what sorts of assistance the government can require for companies uh, to provide it, to to search a product or engage in a wiretap. Um, and the case law is not clear. There's not a ton of case law because usually these things aren't resisted. Um, and so I think that's the interesting issue: is is how far can the government go in conscripting companies to help the government perform its its duties? Um, it's not the privacy yep. uh, aspect. Not that it's not the weakening of a product. That you know, that's all a smokescreen. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And and you know, I, I, the uh, uh, the objection from Apple that they're being conscripted, I always struck me as as a little tone deaf because like. Yeah, that's what the government does in emergencies. They conscript people and, and to say we shouldn't have to put six to ten engineers on this problem for two to four weeks because that's conscription is sort of um, tone deaf unless you uh, were not around for uh, all the draftees who died in Vietnam or uh, 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 Korea or, uh, or World War II. Uh, um, the government can conscript you to do a whole lot more than just uh, um, uh, have your uh, engineers work on a side project for three or four weeks. If I just make one, one more comment on that, it's a sign of the changed times. You know, if... if, if um the government had found a, a, a cell phone of one of the 9-11 hijackers. Um, it wouldn't have had to use the All Writs Act to get Apple to, to help it um, unlock it. Uh, they would have volunteered that assistance in a heartbeat. Yeah, it is amazing how the, how the climate has shifted on this. I, I think that's um, 
it's it exactly what's driving it is not clear, although I suspect a lot of it is that a substantial number of Republicans now uh, resonate to libertarianism, uh, not as many as in 1998-99, but enough to make it a, uh, uh, a bipartisan issue. So I just want to cover a couple other things before we go to the uh, the interview. Uh, um, the um, California AG issued a report on data breaches, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jason and Michael, I think you guys looked at that. Uh, I didn't, uh, uh, but it looked pretty uh, detailed. Um, yeah, it was. You know, this is the third or fourth straight year that California's done a breach report. Last year, we had one of the authors of. 2014 report on the podcast and, and this year covered breach data That's from right. 2012 to 2015 and what the report found is that there were over 650 incidents in that four-year period that impacted about 49 million uh, records in California and what was astounding among other things in the report is that in 2015 alone uh, they estimated that nearly 60 percent of residents in California may have been impacted by uh, one breach or another and and found that while breaches affected Multiple sectors of the economy, the three, and this itself is not news, but the, the three uh, most likely to be affected were retail, financial, and healthcare. Retail uh, most likely to be impacted by outside attacks, financial by inside attacks or by negligence by employees and healthcare sector by physical breaches. Uh, and they found that the top three types of data at risk were social security numbers, payment card data, although that may become less true over time as we go to pin and chip, and healthcare information. They also made a number of recommendations, which Michael observed in something he wrote about the breach report this week. Uh, recommendations by regulators like those in California do have a way of showing up in the in the quote unquote definition of reasonableness. So there are things that people should really pay attention to, uh, and the things that they recommend are very similar to what the kind of things that we tell clients and that we describe in the data breach toolkit: uh, identifying your information assets, assessing what the risks and threats are to that those particular assets. Uh, implementing measures to protect them that are risk-based and, and based on an assessment of, of who might be after them, and then monitoring the effectiveness of those steps. And they also direct uh, people to the Center for Internet Security's critical security controls. There are 20 particular controls in there that they uh, suggest are, are kind of the minimum for reasonable security. Uh, and then they also recommend, as they have in years past, using strong encryption for data both in transit and storage, and encouraging people affected by breaches to uh, sign up for fraud alert protection. Um, interestingly, they, you know, with the, I, I don't want to say momentum because my physics teacher would say that I don't understand the concept, uh, but with the um, uh, attention to federal data, uh, data breach notification standards, which have been having momentum uh, for the last four years uh, without going anywhere, but with, with renewed attention to the possibility of a federal data breach standard, um, California did weigh in and say that uh, rather than have a data breach law that preempts state state protections, which they judge to be superior to those that Congress was considering federally, um, they encouraged state lawmakers in the different states to try to uh, find a way to harmonize the 51 different state and territorial data breach notification laws to, to make compliance easier for companies uh, without sacrificing what they view as the higher protection that state law provides. Well, that would be certainly a good idea if we can get them to do it. Yeah, I think that's that's about as likely to happen as um, you know federal data breach notification law thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, uh, uh, Michael, anything to add to that? Uh, one other thing they they recommend, which which I found noteworthy, uh, is making multi-factor authentication available. Um, 
not just on critical systems, but on any uh, consumer-facing online accounts containing personal information. Um, you know, that, that's been a recommendation various groups have, have made for a while, the use of multi-factor authentication, but a lot of businesses have resisted because uh, it, it, it would impose some serious costs on, on them. So, um, you know, encryption now I think is, is accepted by uh, many people, including many in industry, as, as a necessary measure. Multi-factor authentication is, is the new thing that's, I think, growing in, uh, uh, in force in these recommendations, but not quite there yet. It makes yet. a lot of sense, but um, and, and I, I, I certainly wouldn't want anything important uh, that I get access to not to have multi-factor authentication because it's, it's pretty cheap. If you've got a smartphone uh, or even a phone that gets SMS, getting multi, doing multi-factor authentication is not that hard, although it's one more delay in getting access to an important uh, set of data. But for people who don't have SMS or who don't have smartphones, uh, uh, I think uh, multi-factor authentication uh, is a serious barrier to using services on the net. Yeah, and I think you know, putting in the, the, uh, uh, the, the engine for it on, on the sites, you know, it, it's a cost. It, it's, it, it, certainly the technology is there, but, but it is a, another cost for companies to, um, to put that in place. All right, and uh, just, just to close up, uh, I thought I'd mention uh, that I've spent some time now with the DHS Interim Procedures for Information Sharing. Remember that the uh, Cybersecurity Act passed in December, uh, and it gave DHS... 60 days to come up with guidelines for how to do the sharing. Uh, and one of the things I worried about a little was that uh, uh, since there's a new privacy tax on private sector sharing, that uh, the guidelines would uh, set up uh, rules for private sharing that protected uh, uh, the uh, of the data which is not particularly private and highly unlikely to result in, in prejudicial uh, uh, exposures, uh, but could easily slow down actual useful information sharing. I don't see much of that, but I do worry a little that the DHS also published with the, uh, the Justice Department some interim procedures on what the federal government was going to do with the information that they got. And... Uh, uh, they actually say, well, we've come up with sticks and taxi and a variety of uh, automated formats, uh, and we've made the judgment that those automated formats have cybersecurity value and very little or uh, no impact on uh, uh, personally identifiable information. Um, it, but then they say, well, there, if we can't, tell or if we get an error when we try to process those automated uh, uh, reports, we're going to refer it to human review before sharing the data in that particular field. Now, the good news is they're going to ship everything else out immediately. Um, but I think what they're really talking about here is there are a few fields that can have free form data. 
And the freeform data could say anything. And I suppose, in theory, it could say, oh, and here's Stuart Baker's social security number just in case you need it. Uh, and they want to catch that. But they're really going to slow information sharing if it doesn't fit into the formats that they've already agreed are worth sharing, which is probably okay now. But uh, my worry is that uh, um, in a year or two, the kinds of information that we want to be sharing is likely to change. And unless DHS comes up with a continually evolving set of uh, fields, they're going to uh, require people to put a lot of this information in the free form fields, the text fields, and that's going to end up backed up being reviewed by GS-12s and uh, DHS and maybe the Justice Department. Not the best outcome. So that's that's the modestly bad news out of the procedures that I've found so far. This has been episode 103 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, uh, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson and truncated by uh, uh, Stuart Baker's inability to operate a uh, um, simple tape recorder. Uh, uh, and so with my apologies, uh, um, uh, we uh, uh, invite you to join us uh, in future weeks uh, when we'll be joined by Jerry Britu and Robin Weissman of Coin Center uh, by by Adam Segal, the author of Hacked World Order, by Perry and Boring uh, from the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and by Suzanne Spaulding, Undersecretary for NPPD, uh, a.k.a. the um, uh, Cyber and Infrastructure Protection Agency. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, um, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>